O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked, and salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. If you'll take a minute, it's our tradition at Christ Community to meditate on God's Word. You have your Bibles open to Psalm chapter 3. In the book of 2 Samuel, there are words delivered by Nathan to King David concerning the consequences of David's sin, David's adultery with Bathsheba. And the words by Nathan to the king are chilling. Let me read for you. Thus says the Lord, David, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. David's private sin is going to go public. David's sin wasn't just private, it was also passed on. David's private sin didn't just affect himself, it affected his family and also the nation that he led. David's silent sin is amplified in his son Absalom. When a king abuses his power and divides his family, he sows the dark seeds of division in his own kingdom. That's what David learns from Nathan. Let me say those again, and you think through your own position. Maybe you're a, a, a leader here in some position, whether it's in the church or maybe you're a leader in the community. Maybe you're leading a small group. Maybe you're a, a mother or a father. You're in some position that you exert authority Listen again to these words from Nathan. David, your private sin will go public. David, your sin that you you thought you were keeping to yourself is actually being passed on to your son. David, the, the sin that you thought might just affect you or you and one other person, now it's affecting your whole family. It's going to affect the whole nation. That the silent sin, the sin that you tried to keep silent in yourself, David, it's going to be amplified in the next generation. The background of Psalm 3 is provided in the heading. If you look at that, a psalm of David 
when he fled from Absalom, his son. So it's helpful to understand sort of the background, and I've just given you a flavor for it. But David, as most of you know, was the greatest king in Israel. He's described as a man after God's own heart. It was to David that God promised this everlasting kingdom. We know that it was from David's line that the Messiah was going to come. Yet, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, you read about the tragic fall of David. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, had gotten her pregnant, and then in an effort to cover up his sin, he called the husband Uriah back from war, And Uriah didn't sleep with his wife because he was an honorable man and all the other men were out fighting. And so infuriated David that now David had to put to death Uriah, who was one of his own fighting men. Here's the man who's fighting for your safety. And David puts to death Bathsheba's husband and his warrior Uriah. The the so-called private sin was exposed by Nathan in the next chapter. And we read about that. And the consequences would be devastating. The, the thing that he tried to keep silent would be heard. The thing that he, kept, kept, that he tried to keep private would go public. And you see in chapter 13, the very next chapter, the sinful seeds of David's action begin to bear fruit. One of David's son, Amnon, has his own sexual problems. And he rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Then Tamar's full brother is angry about that, as you might imagine. His name is Absalom, and he puts to death his half-brother, Amnon. So here we have, in just the very next chapter, we have this sexual dysfunction and murder. So the seeds that David thought he was sowing in private that never would really spring up, would never really bear fruit, here they are in the very next generation. They're coming out immediately in the lives of his own sons. Absalom went away for a period of exile, but eventually returned to Jerusalem where he deceptively tried to gain power for himself. He sat outside the gate of Jerusalem and he said bad things about David and he made himself look good. And people began to think, gosh, if Absalom were our king, then everything would be just fine. And after months of, de- of deception and months, months of undermining an undermining campaign for power, Uh, Absalom decides he's amassed enough power. He's going to march on Jerusalem. He's actually going to drive his own father out of the city of Jerusalem and into the wilderness. And then in this one defining act, he pitches a tent on a roof where everyone could see. And the concubines of David that were left in the city, he sleeps with them one by one. So everybody knows who's in charge now. David has to slink out of the city under cover. He he doesn't have enough power now to overcome what his son has done. And as, as he slinks out of this city that he's built, a man named Shimei followed alongside of David and threw rocks and dirt on David the king and cursed him as he left the city. Well, as you imagine, this is a low point for David. I mean, what else could be done to David that hasn't been done at this point? And this is the context of Psalm 3. David is now out in the wilderness. 
All, all of these things that he thought he had, he's been lost. All of these things that Nathan has said has come true. And now he finds himself completely displaced. And what do you do when you find yourself completely dis- displaced? What do you do when you see the consequences of your own sin, when you, you see your, your own friends, your own family turn against you in the way that Absalom had done against David? And he writes this psalm for us, for himself. All sides are caving in on David. You can see it in verse 1 and, one and 2. He uses the word many three times. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And then in this uh, uh, verse 6, many thousands have set themselves up against me. This, he's under tremendous physical uh, pressure. He's not sure even in the people that are with him, is there an enemy in this camp? Every time he turns around, he's never sure if somebody's going to be coming after his life. And then in verse 2, he sort of concludes, many are saying of my soul, There's no salvation for him, even from God. There's a little whisper campaign, whether it's in David's own mind or it's in the in the the voices of the enemy. Hey, he's too far gone. He he can't be helped at this point. God himself can't go far enough to get David. David, your problems, your sin, your enemies have won. They've driven you even beyond the reach of God himself. So I wonder if you've ever felt this low. You look at a hole that maybe you even dug. And then people are starting to pile in there. All sides are beginning to cave in. And it feels like there's, there's no way out there. It's hopeless. And even, even if I tried, I can't do it. And if I cry out to the Lord, it feels like even he's too far away to hear my condition, to be of any kind of help. And that's where David finds himself in Psalm 3. And what I want to do this morning is examine how David responds to this kind of trouble, this kind of attack. And see what we can learn. See what we can imitate. Because I don't know who it's going to happen to. But many of you in 2014 will find yourself in this place. Many of you have found yourself in this place before. But what do you do when all things are caving in on you? How do you cry out to the Lord? What's, what's the way to move through that kind of trouble and that kind of attack, that kind of anxiety and we can learn some things from David and we'll start with verse 3. This is the one of the most important words in the whole psalm. Look at this. Verse 3, but you need to circle that word. That's a that's a great transitional word. But God. It's a familiar turning point in the Bible. You remember in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, Joseph is facing his brothers who had cast him into a pit and then sold him into his, to slavery. And this is what Joseph says to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended for good. Acts chapter 3, Peter is standing at the temple and he's surrounded by these Jewish people, as you can imagine. And he's looking at them, giving them this sermon. He says, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, yet you handed him over to be killed. You disowned the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. 
Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this little word, this, this word, but, it, it makes all the difference. David understands something that you and I must understand, especially when you're in a, a hole. And, and your life is caving in around you. You must remember that your, your monstrous behavior, your problems, your sin, your enemies, none of these things get the last word. God gets the last word. If you've made a big mistake, which you think has ruined your life, it's not true. God is bigger than you. He's bigger than your mistakes. And God gets the last word. If you're a preacher or you're a friend of someone and you're talking to them about Jesus, you're, you're charged to give a very important word to that person. But you don't get the last word in that person's life. God gets the last word. If you're a parent and you find it, don't you find it easy as a parent to get locked up in your fears? You're afraid of your own failures coming out on your children. You're afraid of your lack of knowledge. You're afraid of your situation as a single parent maybe. And, and you think, are, my children are doomed. Guess what? You, you, you speak an important word into the lives of your child. But you don't get the last word in the life of your child. God gets the last word. You've experienced some terrible violation. You may have been violated by an enemy or by your family. The Bible assures us that God takes the most sickening injustice and can bend it to accomplish his will. Evil and injustice don't get the final word. God gets the last word. Amen. God gets the last word. And David understands this, even though he knows he's in a pit of his own making. And now people are piling on his son, this man who's walking alongside of him, throwing dirt on him. Everybody seems to be turning against him. Many thousands that feels like the whole country's against King David, even though he's in that situation. And he cries out and he knows something that you and I must know. And that is, but God. But God is still at work despite my circumstances, despite my sin, despite the enemy. God's still at work. He's going to get the last word. And it's very easy in the midst of pain and trouble. I don't know if you find this true of yourself, but it's very easy for me in the midst of pain and trouble to, to think about your current circumstance, circumstances like a photograph. So this is where I am on January the 5th, 2014. This is the pain that I'm in. This is the trouble that I'm in. And I take that like a photograph in my mind. And, I, and then I, when I look forward into the future, I always think I'm, I'm always in that same spot. I'm never going to get out of this frame. But your life isn't a photograph. It's, it's a film. And in every frame, God is working in every frame. And no matter how stagnant you may be or no matter how stagnant your situation may be, David is saying to us, but God, but God is working in ways, whether you see it or not, for good for those who love him. And David's certain of that. So that's the, the key transition in this particular prayer. It's, it's great. What's one of the great things about the psalm is the, is the psalms is the psalmist gives you the, the language of emotion. 
God, it's everyone against me. And you can cry out to the Lord that kind of feeling. And then he gives you a way to turn that and say, but even if that's true, you're still at work. But God is working in every frame of creation. Then notice in verses 3 and 4, the the sort of the Godward confidence that David has in his prayer. First, God is a shield. God is going to be David's shield around him. You might remember the words of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He will cover you with his feathers. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield. Aren't you so glad it didn't say your faithfulness is your shield? I don't have a good shield if it's my faithfulness. My shield's got a lot of holes in it. My shield looks like a piece of cardboard. But when I have troubles coming toward me, I need some greater faithfulness to be my shield. And God is saying, David is telling us, God Almighty is going to be your shield. He's going to be the one that surrounds you. He's going to be the one that protects you. He is my glory. The second thing that God is my shield. God is my glory. David understands that the glory that can be given by men can easily be taken away. Whatever glory you may get from your spouse, whatever glory you may get from your child, whatever glory you may get from work, whatever glory you may get from wherever you may be, it can be taken away. Oh, how David understands this. Remember David and Goliath, he's the one who comes in and he defeats the giant. And then after they, he defeats Goliath, the people create a song about the event. It's a great thing to do. Uh, some event happens and then you say, well, let's remember it by a song. And they have this sort of chant that they're singing. Saul, the, the king at that point, he killed his thousands. But David, he killed his tens of thousands. And here the people are just chanting this. Imagine being David, this young shepherd who sort of just steps into the limelight. And now there's a song about him. He's killed tens of thousands. He's even greater than the king. And now he's exiting his own city in shame and somebody's throwing dirt and rocks on him. See, David understands whatever glory you can get from this world, whatever glory you can get from man easily can be taken away. And so now he's saying, now, now my glory is in God. All glory in himself is gone. David's hope for glory from his family, gone. David's hope for glory in his past magnificent feats, gone. David's hope for glory in his kingdom and wealth, gone. Now David is turning and saying, my only glory comes from one, one source, and that's from God alone. See, one of the hardest but best things about trouble and stress is that it begins to whittle away things that you had put your weight into. Well, I'm somebody because, and then you name, name you start naming the things. And of course, you don't really put, think you're putting that much weight into it until they're all taken away. And this trouble and stress for David is a, a welcome reminder, as difficult as it is, that all of his glory, all of the real weight that he has in his life 
is from God and not from himself. Third, he is the lifter of my head. We sang about that from in the offering. That This phrase means he's going to restore my position. My, 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 I'm downcast. I'm looking down. Some, I've, something's been lost. And God's going to be the lifter of, of your head. He's going to restore you back to the position that you belong in. And you might remember in Genesis chapter 40 when Joseph had, had been sold into Egypt. And then he was in the king's palace. And then he got put into prison. And while he's in prison, these two men get thrown into prison with, with him. A, a baker and the cupbearer. And they have these unusual dreams and they come to Joseph and say, we understand you're somebody who can interpret these dreams. And Joseph says to the cupbearer, after he tells him his dream, he says, within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. So David's confident that restoration is going to come from the Lord. It's not going to come from him. And he's going to be put back in his rightful position and one day we can trust that god will lift all the heads of those who have trusted in him and restore us as sons and daughters remember uh so often this happens i'm trying to remember i think it was two weeks ago when i preached and i talked about the woman who had been bleeding remember this woman she's been bleeding for 12 years and she's trying to she's trying to get healing and she knows that if she touches Christ, she believes that she can get some healing. And so she sort of sneaks up in him in the crowd and he reaches out and grabs the, the edge of his cloak. And he stops the parade and says, hey, we got to find this person. And so she realizes he's not going to go away until he finds me. So she kind of sheepishly comes up and says, oh, I did it. Expecting that this unholy person touching this holy person is going to get like the lightning bolt response from Jesus. And you remember the very first word he says, such a critical word. He looks at her and says, daughter. See, I'm lifting your head. I'm restoring you from the position to a different position. Now, now you're a daughter of the king. You're going to have your head lifted. You're going to be restored back. And David understands that whether it's going to be tomorrow or whether it's going to be in, in glory, so at some point, God's going to lift our heads and he's going to restore us back to our rightful position as sons and daughters of God. Then let's look at verse four together. I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. As a, as a consequence of David's sin, he'd been thrust out of Jerusalem. He'd been driven out of the presence of God. This was Jerusalem where, it was where, where the ark was, where the tabernacle was, and eventually the temple. And David's being driven away from God's presence. And he's looking back. And he's looking at Jerusalem. And he's crying out. He's crying out to the Lord. And, and he's asking for an answer from God's holy hill. And it's easy for us to see the cross here. David cries out and is answered from the holy hill of Jerusalem. David is an adulterer. David is a murderer. David is a deceiver. David is someone who abuses power and position. And as a consequence of that, 
He's passed some of this on to his own family. And now he's looking back to Jerusalem. He's looking back to the holy hill where God's presence is. And he's saying, I'm just praying that from Jerusalem could come an answer. And how is it that God ultimately answers the cry of a sinful man? How is it that God is going to arise from Jerusalem and save David and save us from our enemies? Well, a thousand years later, a real king comes. David was just a shadow. This is the real king. And where is that king going to arise? Where is that king going to shield David from God's wrath? At the cross. David, maybe he can't see it like we can, but we understand that this cry towards Jerusalem, this cry towards the holy hill. God, I need somebody to be a shield around me from my own self. I need somebody to be a shield around me from the wrath of God that I deserve. I I need a real king to come and and he'll be my only glory. I I need someone who could lift my head and, and restore me to be a son or a daughter of God. And David's cry is ultimately answered on a hill outside of Jerusalem by Jesus dying on a cross. You might remember that as he as as now this king is outside of Jerusalem dying on a hill. What did people do as they walked by? They spit and cursed on the king. So we see so many parallels of David's life into the life of of Jesus. David understands that salvation belongs to the Lord. See, see, nobody's too far gone. He's heard those whispers. Maybe he's even entertained them himself. That, that this salvation, he's, he, he's too far from God's salvation. And he knows, no, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to other people. It belongs to the Lord. And nobody's too far gone, no matter what they've done, no matter what kind of sin they've been involved with. Now, let me finish by pointing out three areas that as you cry out to the Lord and then you, then you say, okay, but God, you're, you're trying to create this, this foundation you can stand on. But God is doing something. I, yes, these things, these circumstantial things are happening, but I'm not going to live in my circumstances. I'm going to stand on the stone that's called, but God. But God can do these things. And what I'm sure of, what, are the, what the promises are, is, is that he's going to be my shield, that, that his salvation is, is for people like me, that uh, he's going to be the one who lifts up my head. Now, when you're standing in that place and you're really solidly standing on these promises, I think we see in verses 5, 6, and 7 some things that are true about the person who stands in that place. And they're very simple, but may be helpful for you as signs of whether you're, you're really trusting God in times of trouble. Verse 5, I lay down and I slept. I mean, it's a simple verse. But how well do you sleep in times of trouble? See, it could just be one little physical gauge that you could say, yeah, I'm up all night. I can't, I can't get to sleep. If I get to sleep and I wake up, I never can get back. I'm just always churning. 
And if that's the case for you, you might need to go backwards into the earlier verses and say, am I really trusting in God? Can, can I really be churning in this way and also be trusting? One commentator says this, David was driven from his throne, his home, pursued by enemies who were numbered by the thousands, persecuted by his own son. The forces of his enemies might come upon him at any moment. And in these circumstances, persecuted as he was, and under all the anxiety and distress, here is proof and an illustration of the peace which confidence in God gives to those who put their trust in him. So just one question. Is there a peace running through? And one way you can say is, Well, can I go to sleep and stay asleep? Or am I churning and therefore I'm really trying to trust in something else to come through other than God? Secondly, I have no fear. Verse 6. I will not be afraid, even if it's many of thousands of people are setting themselves up against me. I don't know if you've heard of this new video game. I'm not a video gamer, but I can read. And so I hear about these things coming out, and I heard about this new video game coming out that's called Nevermind. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's, uh, it's based on biofeedback. So it's not just joysticks and buttons. You strap something, you strap a heart monitor to your chest. And the way it works is it gives you certain mazes maybe to do or car chases or things that you do, and it gets harder the more you panic. It reads your heartbeat, and as it speeds up and brings something to you, if you can regulate your heartbeat, you can get out of the maze. But the more you panic, the more the car, the car horn beeps, the truck's coming at you the side, and you start panicking, you can never get out. Now, I don't know what would possess somebody to want a game like this. This is one of the questions I have when I read about this. Who would want added strips? I can't do it. I, I, that's what I feel about my life. So I don't need a video game. I need an escape. I don't understand. But it's like if, if, if this were true of David, if you strap this biofeedback monitor to David and he said, thousands of people, they're coming at me at all sides, but I'm trusting in the Lord. I'm not afraid. And I just wonder on your anxiety level, If we had a little heartbeat monitor, a little stress level monitor, a little fear monitor, what would it say about the way you think about 2014? David can sleep. David can be not afraid because he's trusting in the Lord. And finally, we see this disposition to forgive, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord and your blessing. This is his prayer. Your blessing be on your people. What people? The people that just ran me out of my own city. See, David understands that he's part of the problem. Yes, Absalom has his thing to own. But it started with David. And he's looking back and he says, I know these people, they're against me, but Lord, what I really want is your blessing to be on them. And I wonder, in the midst of trouble and in the midst of turmoil, are you somebody who likes to lash out? Or can you forgive? See, a lot of times when you're in pain, something weird 
But it's helpful if you just see somebody else in pain. And so you lash out. And David said, no, I'm, I'm going to resist that because I know I'm part of the problem. And I'm going to look back on these people and I'm going to say, even the people who are, who are cursing me, even the people who are throwing dirt on me, I'm going to pray that your blessing would fall on them. And if you look back in Second Samuel, that's exactly what you see. David is restored and then Shimei. Remember the guy outside the gate throwing dirt and rocks on David? He comes into David's presence. And what is he expecting? Uh-oh. And David says, hey, I forgive. May God's blessing be on you. That, that's somebody who understands their own need for forgiveness, their own trust in the Lord and their ability then to reach out and forgive other people. Of course, it helps us to understand, again, the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross. People have cursed him. People have spit on him. And what does he say? Father, Just take all these people out right now. That's what I would have wanted to say. But what does he say? Forgive. These people are cursing me. These people are spitting on me. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. Why can Jesus say something like that? He trusts in the Lord. Even when it's all caving in around the Savior, he knows that I'll take this cup if it's the cup that God has given me. Because through the pain can come grace and glory. And so we come here this morning remembering Jesus at the Last Supper. He's going to be the king who's going to be spit on. He's the going to be the king who's going to answer David's cry and our cry from his holy hill. And he set this up so he could help you to not forget. Don't forget that he's answered you. Don't forget that he's a shield. Don't forget that he's the lifter of your head. Don't forget that he's for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come this morning like David. I mean, who, who could stand before you? No one. Most of us uh, live in problems that we've made for ourselves. Everyone here who's of any age has felt like everything's caving in around them. Every, everyone is against them. And here you are. You've given us a prayer by David to help us remember this meal. That you are going to be the shield. You are going to be our glory. You will be the lifter of our heads. You will restore us one day as a son or daughter of the king. And until that final day, Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would be found faithful in this year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.